All right. This is the second year in a tradition of name that tune. Only it's not name that tune. It's uh, questions and stories. Hello. I told some folks yesterday I have 14 grandchildren going on 16, and there's always somebody learning how to talk. So there's always a couple of the grandchildren, they just sit around saying, hello, hello. And we have two twins, little girls. You put them in front of the mirror, and they think they're seeing their twin, and they just sit there saying, hello, hello. So, hello. Um, you guys know about the Jesus book, right? You don't know about the Jesus book? You're about to. It says in Mark 4, this is the Jar Jar Banks Bible. It's Hawaiian pigeon. It is. It's the Jesus book. Can you see that? Let me read you Mark 4.33 in the Jesus book. It says, Jesus tell the people with plenty stories like that. He only tell them stuff that they can understand. He never teach them other stuff, only with stories. But every time he went stay, only with that guys he teaching, he tell them what the stories mean. That's what we're going to do tonight. For those of you who don't understand Hawaiian pidgin, it says in Mark 4.33 that Jesus went around teaching with stories, and then he'd take his disciples away and he'd tell them what the story meant. We're going to do all that tonight except for the last part. If you don't understand the story, there's nobody here that can explain it to you. Um, but, you know what they say about a picture? A picture is worth what? So how much is three minutes of video worth? It's a library. We've got some uh, videos. While you guys are thinking of stories that I'm supposed to answer with, I mean questions that I'm supposed to answer with a story, and uh, people have been asking me if I have any new Minkai stories. I do, but I can't remember them. <laughs> but we did make a video when Minkai and I, when the end of the spear was coming out, Minkai and I traveled for six weeks, and they only gave us one day off in midtown Manhattan. And uh, so I asked Minkai what he wanted to do. I told him we didn't have to talk to any foreigners that day, and I said, so what do you want to do? And Minkai looked at me and he said, we have the Omenaki, right? The blowguns? I said, yeah, why? He said, I saw a place down there with lots of trees and fat squirrels. <laughs> Central Park. He said, what do you say we just... Now, he didn't say it exactly like this, but this translated into Georgia English. It'd be like... He said, what do you say we go down there and shoot some of them squirrels and eat them? So I was going to explain to him about going to jail. But Minkai wants to go to jail. I mean, where else can you go? They lock you in. They give you three meals a day and you get to watch television. And that's practically heaven. So Minkai and I put on our headdresses and our poison tip dart holders and our eight and a half, nine foot blowguns. And we just strolled down the street in midtown Manhattan to Central Park. Nobody noticed. I kid you not, nobody noticed. 
my wife was was with us, Ginny, but she didn't. She pretended like she didn't know us. Everybody else pretended like they didn't notice us either. So we got down to Central Park, and the only problem that we ran into is first, Minkai noticed that there was something weird with the water. Now, this is the first time we'd ever been blowgun hunting in trees where you can see skyscrapers behind. You don't believe me, do you? But there was this guy in this fancy uniform driving this little uh, golf cart, and he took special notice of us. So I... Jenny was kind of because she didn't want me to go to jail. She didn't want to acknowledge that she was with us, but she didn't want us to go to jail. So she drew my attention to the park ranger who was trying to figure out what we were doing with those long sticks. Like, so I pretended like we were picking fruit out of the trees. And when when I pointed out to Minkai, he wanted to shoot the uh, the bald eagle that was in the top of the tree. And you do know what bald eagle tastes like, don't you? It's like a cross between California condor and spotted owl. <laughs> now, it wasn't really a bald eagle. It was an osprey. But Minkai wanted to shoot a squirrel. But I said, Minkai, see that guy over there with the fancy uniform? Minkai would love to have a police uniform, and he wants a police cruiser so he can drive up and down the airstrip out in the jungles. But <laughs> when I pointed out the uh, park ranger and told him that that guy was pinte, he was really angry because we were going to shoot his squirrels, then Minkai looked past the park ranger and he saw the uh, horse-drawn carriages that they give rides around. And Minkai says to me, how many darts you got? <laughs> okay, and on our way down to Central Park, Minkai had seen some street people and he wanted to know. He, he recognizes something different about these people. And I explained to him that they didn't have houses and they didn't have food. So we get down there, we're going to hunt squirrels. And Minkai sees these horses Big horses. And so Minkai said, what do you say we shoot one of those caballos? We shoot one of those things, and then we can share meat with those people that don't have houses or food. Now, besides my wife, there was a guy with a video camera, and he videotaped this. So we made a little three-minute video. We call it Open Season in Central Park. No. I don't think so. No, there's no sound. Tonight, there is no sound. Except for you all eating. Enjoy. Are we supposed to pray for your dinner, or did you do that? Or are you Presbyterians? I was just kidding about the Presbyterian part. Do Presbyterians pray? Out loud? Before meals? Only before meals. Okay, thank you very much. I I was confused about that. Are there any Presbyterians here? Which kind? I'll do penance. Okay, open season in Central Park. Oh, we got a problem. You just have to take my word for it. Oh, here we are. Watch the people. Nobody notices, I kid you not. It's like, oh, a couple more guys with blowguns. Minkai thinks smoking is fun, and then he realized that we were smoking. Watch. 
he thought you had to suck on a cigarette or something to do this, but watch, we were smoking there in New York. Don't tell me they cut out the smoking part. They were poison tipped. <laughs> Minkai can't see without his glasses, but he'll never bring his glasses because he's afraid somebody up here, since so many of you wear glasses, he's afraid you'll steal his. So he never brings his glasses, so he can't hit anything. Mikai's wondering, where is that coming from? Okay, this is about the time that the uh, park ranger showed up. Do you think they have a law against blowgun hunting with poison tipped darts in New York? While you're watching this, when we were going back to the hotel and we were going up the elevator, there were about six other people on the elevator who were wondering, too, what those long sticks were. And Minkai asked me, who are these people? And I said, I don't know. They're Kuwaiti. They're foreigners. He said, are these the people that made the tall buildings fall down? I said, no, no, these aren't those people. And he said, you said you didn't know who those people were. Like, <laughs> these might be them. And he said, let's get off this thing. I don't want to be with them. When we went over, there, this, this young lady that drives the horses uh, for rides, she's from Bosnia, and she wanted Minkai to pet this horse. I mean, do you know how big the teeth are on horses? I mean, the, the, the most dangerous animal in the jungle is the wild pig, and their teeth are nothing like this horse. But we let the horse go. I asked the, I asked the young lady if she liked movies, and she said she did, and I said... Uh, you know, if you want to, you can go down to the theater tonight, just down the street there, and you can watch Minkai in the movie. He said, oh, I already see him on television. We were on Latin CNN. Only we're sitting there with, this, with the lady that's supposed to interview us, and they had monitors on the cameras in front of us. And for some reason, the, uh, the monitors, there was just a slight delay. So we would do something, and then we would see ourselves on the monitor do it. So Minkai is going, you know, like this, and he'd see himself do it. The lady got to laughing so hard, she, didn't, she couldn't talk. So our whole interview with her is just Minkai doing all these funny things like, and, and no questions. It was a great spot on nonverbal CNN. All right, now you guys are witnesses. We went hunting in Central Park. I got to thinking, what happens if we shoot a squirrel? Then we got to take it home. He's going to want me to cook it in the motel room. Then we really are going to. Plus set off all the smoke detectors in the hotel. All right, guys. That's all I have prepared. So does somebody have a question? Good. Okay. Um, the what? The status of the church. 
status of the church, that is a um, hard question to answer, not because I don't know the answer, but because it's sad. The church amongst the Waurani is virtually non-existent today. The church that nurtured me as a young boy in my teens, in my 50s, is not functioning. There are believers, don't misunderstand me, there are fervent believers still amongst the Waurani who are willing to lay down their lives. They would die, no question about it, for their faith. But the church as an organism is not functioning. One of the reasons is because outsiders really have had a hard time believing that the Waurani could understand the gospel and could take responsibility and authority for their own church. And because as more and more outsiders, believing that the Waurani couldn't manage their own church and have their own church, kept coming in and doing things for the Waurani that they were capable and should have been doing for themselves. And the Waurani finally came to the conclusion that they couldn't do their own church. Amongst the young people today, there is extremely, extremely little interest in spiritual things. Um, a few of my, the next generation, my contemporaries' children are still interested and becoming more interested as they see the disintegration of their culture and their church. But the next generation down, um, really there's very, very little interest. Unfortunately, it's a sad thing to see. And I, you know, I don't ask the Lord many questions anymore, but one of the questions that I ask the Lord on a regular basis is, why, Lord, would you have used this story that, that the Waurani are absolutely key players in? Why would you use this story even today to uh, influence in a positive way people in North America and Europe and other parts of South America and yet see so little benefit from it um, for the Waurani themselves. And I could, I could tell you stories. You know, one of the things, as I travel around, people all the time come to me very enthusiastically and tell me that they went down to see Palm Beach, that they've been there. I've got some sand from Palm Beach. And you know what? When I go down there, the Waurani, believers and non-believers, ask me if the people that keep flying in and, and just go right past them down to the river, if those are God followers. And I sort of prevaricate and say, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't see them. And they say, well, they came, in the, they came in the God followers airplane. And then they want to know, why did these people go down to the Imunaya, to the sand? Is it just that they want to remember that we're the people that killed the foreigners who came to give us God's carvings? And then they say, why don't they come to our houses and drink, plant and drink with us? And why don't they come to our God's house? Why don't they come to the church and sing with us? And I say, well, what did they do? And they say, they just, they came and they landed and they went down and they got some sand and they sang, they chanted down there a little bit and then they came, got in the plains and went. Palm Beach was about people, not about sand. Um, do any of you read Popular Mechanics? Is there no Viagra crowd in here? 
That must be the people that... There's one hand back there. Oh, you just want another sandwich. I'm sorry. I, I'm just kidding. But Except that most of the ads in the back are for... Um, well, let's just call it the blue pill because they might be recording this. But in here... Now, I've, I've read this for a long time. I... Certain type of nerds. We like to read Popular Mechanics, but in the May issue, there was a, a six-page article. The first time I've ever seen the gospel presented in Popular Mechanics. I kid you not. They found out that we were at ITech, the Indigenous Peoples Technology and Education Center. That we were. Do you have? Do you have a picture of the uh, Maverick? They heard that we we had developed a flying car that actually flew. And so they came down to do a story on the flying car, and then they wanted to know why we were building a flying car. So we, you know, we talked to them about frontier people wanting to take care of their their own people as God followers and commissioned by Him to take care of their people's physical and spiritual needs. And so we said, so that's why we're doing it, because you know, there's no roads. You get to the end of the end of the road, and sometimes you don't know where it's going to be. The bridge is out, or like now in Brazil, I mean, there's. Thousands and thousands of square miles that are underwater. They're flooded. The uh, Rio Negro and the Solimois rivers are way, way, way above flood stage. The highest they've been in 100 years. So what do you do down there? So we thought So we, we thought that we would combine a car with an airplane and why not a boat while we were at it? So they came down to see if it would really fly, but they were, they were more fascinated with why we were doing what we were doing than with what we were doing. So there's a six-page article in the May issue of uh, Popular Mechanics. About two and a half pages is about our flying car that we call the Maverick. It really, we were calling it the MAV, the Missionary Assault Vehicle. But <laughs> the people that were helping us build it are uh, Mennonites, and, and so we, we called it the Maverick. Um, because people kept saying, boy, I can just see that thing with 50 caliber machine guns on it. So we call it the Maverick. But they had popular mechanics. There's a picture of me as a five-year-old boy watching my dad land his plane down in the jungles in popular mechanics. Uh, we'll show you this. And then, uh, and, then, and then if you really want me to, I'll tell you about uh, Whoopi Goldberg and missions. You haven't heard that one, have you? Can, can you play the uh, Maverick? Oh, you know, this one. Oh, this is, oh, this is, uh, and then Popular Mechanics gave us a breakthrough award. Every year they take, you know, the stories that they've done, and they give a few breakthrough awards, and they invited us to come to New York City to receive our breakthrough award, and we explained that we had a lot of stuff to do, and we couldn't come to New York. So they paid to take six of us from iTech to New York City, and they paid for us to ship the Maverick, the flying car, and then they shut down a lane of traffic right in front of the uh, Hearst Media Building. We're talking New York City. I didn't have my blowgun. We'd have gone hunting again. Can you imagine shooting squirrels from a flying car? Would that be cool or what? So they shut down, and, and then they posted guards out there to make sure we wouldn't do anything. And then people kept coming by and asking the guards, so what is this about? I kid you not, um, union guards telling people about the gospel, about why we were building flying cars on the street in New York City, paid for by popular mechanics. <laughs> Only the Whoopi Goldberg story is better than this. 
Yeah, let's let's do the uh, let's do the phone. Oh, and when we shut this down, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and we had to take the Maverick around two blocks down to a one-way street and then back. That's a long ways to push a flying car. <laughs> so we drew straws, and I got to fly. I got to drive the uh, Maverick. We got no lights on it yet. Half the cars in New York drive around with no lights either, so nobody noticed. I almost got the first flying car ticket in New York City. I would have, except the policeman got stuck behind traffic, and I just flew over. No, I'm just, I just made that part up. But I did drive it around. I drove it four blocks and into, into a parking garage. Isn't that something that all of you have wanted to do? The next day, the, uh, the car came to get us to take us out to the Teterboro Airport, where we had the, the little plane built by... Indians down in the Amazon jungle that we're going to fly back to Florida. That's true. And uh, the guy that picked us up, he said, so what are you here for, business? And I said, uh, well, actually, we came for a, um, uh, a conference, uh, you know, where they were showing new technologies like, you know, like a 260-knot a, a helicopter and, and there was a flying car. Oh, he said, oh, you should have seen what I saw yesterday. He said, I was driving downtown just, just off of Broadway, and he said, I saw a flying car. I kid you not, he said, it was great. You want to see my pictures? So he started showing us these pictures of our Maverick in front of the Hearst Building. We said, yeah, that's, that's what we came to do. And, and then I asked him, I said, where are you from? Quito, Ecuador. I said, I am too. And everything on his face said, liar. So I sang the national anthem squatting. I couldn't completely stand up. I sang the national anthem, and then he believed me. Uh, this is the uh, Maverick. If we can get the media. Evan is the only medical doctor that I know that can show you videos while he's giving you a physical exam. Oh, and uh, while we're at it, uh, we, we have an opportunity for some of you ladies. Is there anybody here uh, substantially pregnant? We have a new gynecology chair, and we're... Please. You know what we're going for? This is the ultimate. You know we do ident, indigenous dental training, and we do IC, and we do IMED, including childbirth... What we would like to do is test your eyes, pull your tooth, and deliver your baby all at the same time at the same place. That could get us into uh, popular medicine. Okay, oh, here's the... Do you have music? They were playing this at Popular Mechanics in the uh, Breakthrough Awards. Isn't it amazing what you can do with computer-generated graphics? (laughs) It looks like it's flying, doesn't it? It looked like it, too, from inside. I was there. Why don't we show it on the ground? Now, it's pretty slow in the air, but guys, if you like a hot car, this thing is really hot. On the ground, um, 
so far no tickets, but uh, we've had it over 90 miles an hour on, on paved roads, but then it'll go off-road too. It's got a real long throw suspension. I mean, you never know when the road's going to end, right? <laughs> and uh, put pontoons on it, and uh, it's, got a, it's got one engine that drives uh, wheels for the ground, and then it drives a uh, propeller for the air. And the, the good thing is that you drive it in the air just like you do on the ground. Now, people are always telling me, oh, do you know how to drive an airplane? No, we fly airplanes, but you drive this in the air. It's got a steering wheel, an accelerator, and a brake. The only difference between flying and driving is that there's one little lever that you pull to fly, which con- connects your, uh, your steering wheel to hydraulics that steer your parachute. And in the air, the brake is just for security, just a sense of security. But it's a false <laughs> sense because it doesn't work. So if any of you would like to fly and you've never had the chance, come down. It'll take about two hours to teach you. That's to teach you how to get the uh, wing up. Okay, you got it on the ground? This is the Maverick in its tuxedo. Is there sound? What's that? In the U.S., in the U.S., actually, you do have to have a pilot's license, technically. <laughs> Only none of us have. I mean, what kind of a license? The FAA doesn't have a license for a flying car yet. So. <laughs> Miles to the gallon. Depends how fast you want to go, and how many people you have on it, or in it. Or on it. How high? You know, it it depends with uh, with a turbocharged engine. The engine that's on there could be turbocharged, and you could probably make 16, 18,000 feet. You'd need oxygen. What's that? Yeah, boat. You put take off the wheels, put it on pontoons. It'll go on water. The wing is a parachute. Yeah, this would be a terrible suicide machine because you can't make it crash. You could fall asleep and it would just come down and hit the... But there is a solution to that too. You could unbuckle and jump. We don't recommend it. Don't do that at home. It's got a uh, Subaru engine modified for aviation use, so makes it dual ignition, single plug. Don't you love that when we rattle off stuff like that? We could do that. Do you want to hear more tech, techy stuff? You do really, don't you? I Is this on the website? We'll put it on the website, right, Evan. What's that? Yes. The exhaust comes out pipes to the back. It has a really cool sound. It, uh, depending on the weight, it would take off, lightweight, it would take off from here to the door. Um, that's in this model. Now we've, we're building a new, smaller, lighter weight um, sports car model. This one, this one is actually four seat. But uh, we decided we wanted to be able to carry a stretcher patient with a caregiver and a pilot. 
But in order to be able to make this affordably enough, we need to make it in fairly high volume. And for those of you who fly, there's a new uh, category of uh, pilot's license called the sport pilot's license. And with that, you can fly only aircraft that are under 1,320 pounds, and they can only go, you know, 120 knots and uh, some other things like that, day only. And we're going to make, but maximum of two seats for that one. So we're going to make, we have a new fuselage uh, design, and we're just putting wheels on it that will be uh, either two-seat or three-seat, either four-wheel or three-wheel, because in a lot of states, if you have four wheels, it's considered a car. You have to have airbags and windshield wipers and all that kind of stuff. But if it's three-wheel, it's considered a motorcycle, and then all you have to have is lights, mirrors, and brakes. Chrome? You like those wheels, don't you? They're very nice wheels, and they're very lightweight. No, this is this is the prototype. Uh, only Troy Townsend, who's who's an accountant that has a wild side to him, and I have flown it so far. The uh, the the uh, prototype, the uh, the previous one to this, uh, we did take a couple of people and just let them fly it who didn't know how to, just just to be sure that somebody that didn't know how to fly really could. Have you ever seen anybody about 100 feet going, ah! <laughs> It really makes great pictures. Okay, now Whoopi Goldberg. You wondered about Whoopi Goldberg in missions, right? You know, I am proof that God can use anybody in missions, and maybe some of you here are too. I am convinced that God chose his disciples with the intention of not picking the sharpest tacks in the box so that we would see their example and say, maybe I could do that. (laughs) But every once in a while, God reaches way beyond what we expect and uh, pulls one out of the hat. Like, you know, we're supposed to, Daniel was talking this morning about loving our enemies and and our commission is to take them the gospel too. I mean, that's who we're supposed to go to. That's how we get even. Do you know who Gracia Burnham is, who, whose husband was killed by the um, the Shining Path? Over, I, I was at um, and bring me back to Whoopi Goldberg because I'm coming back there. But we were sitting at with Jerry Falwell at a uh, at a breakfast something rather. I can't remember why I was there, but uh, at uh, what's the name of the school? Liberty. Liberty. Liberty, and uh, Jerry Fall was talking to us about uh, having Muslim students at Liberty University, and he said that, uh, who's the ugliest man that ever, um, Arafat, <laughs> and, his, and his outfits didn't help any. No, no, I'm not being mean, I'm just being real. Now, wasn't he, hello, okay, we got one, one person agreeing. Arafat challenged challenged Jerry Falwell to allow Muslim Palestinian students to come to Liberty University. And Jerry said no because when they come here, they're going to find out what Jesus can do for them and then they'll want to follow him. And then when when they go back, then you're going to persecute him. So they made a deal and Arafat said, I personally will see that they're not persecuted and if they want to be followers of Jesus, I will make sure that other people don't persecute them if you'll just take them and give them an education. And uh, 
and uh, Gracia Burnham's listening to this, and all of a sudden, I mean, she's very meek and mild, great speaker, but she just kind of, she's just sitting there all of a sudden, she says, I know how to get even with them. And we all looked at her like, what? And she said, with the gorillas. I mean, they held her for a year, and then, actually it was the military, but it was because of that. I mean, they threatened to kill them and stuff, and she's saying, I know how to get even with them. And I was saying, Gracie, we're not supposed to get even. She said, I know what we'll do. We'll start a scholarship fund, and we'll give the gorillas' children scholarships to come to Liberty. Is that a great way to get even or what? Okay, that was just a side detour. So back to so, – so try to imagine the person that you can least imagine God using in missions. Madonna. Um, who's the guy that, who's the, who's the tall, thin guy that, uh, uh, what? <laughs> Howard Stern. No, that's shame on you. No, I was thinking the Arab guy that's, whose name sounds a lot like our, bin, uh, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, yeah. When you get to this age, you have to have things to, to kind of jog your memory to get there. Okay, so, now can you imagine... You don't think God loves Osama bin Laden? You don't think God loves Osama bin Laden? Do any of you have wayward children? Do you not love them? Whoopi Goldberg is just next. Madonna, um, Howard Stern, Osama bin Laden, and then Whoopi Goldberg. Well... I couldn't imagine Whoopi Goldberg being used in missions, but I met the, this couple. They were from the Philippines. They, they were born in the Philippines, and then their parents emigrated to the United States, and they both grew up, and they both became nightclub singers. And then they became God followers, and they met, and they got married. Or maybe they met and got married, and then became God followers. At any rate, they felt God calling them into missions. And so the obvious place for two nightclub singers from the Philippines to go as missionaries is Japan. <laughs> what are you thinking of? Don't you remember how, who we serve? So, so they felt God calling them to go to Japan. So they raised all their, and you've got to raise a gazillion dollars to go to Japan just to eat. Even if you mooch a place to live. So they ended up, after a couple of years of raising support and trying to figure out what nightclub singers are going to do in Japan, so they, they went to Bible school, and then they went to Japan, and then they found out that the Japanese aren't warm and cuddly like the Filipinos, and they weren't being invited into people's homes. So they, they started trying to figure out what they should do differently, and veteran missionaries told them, uh-uh, Japanese don't invite even their close friends over, that's not something that they do. You go to the bar and drink together maybe, but, but not into their homes. And so suddenly the, this Filipino couple, God followers from the United States in Japan, had nothing to do and no hope, and yet they were sure that God had called them to Japan. Stop the story. That's where I love to stop the story and say, okay, now you finish the story. Anybody want to try and you got to work Whoopi Goldberg into it. <laughs> Sister Act, you got it, you got it. So Whoopi Goldberg on the other side of the world is uh, is making a movie. Um, how many of you have seen Sister Act? Okay, so I don't have to explain the movie to you. Those of you who don't know, just ask the people sitting around that raise their hands. So Whoopi Goldberg makes this movie 
sister act. And, it, I mean, it was okay here in the U.S. I mean, I kind of liked it. Uh, but in Japan, it made a sensation. And suddenly, people all over Japan wanted to learn how to sing black gospel. <laughs> But where in Japan do you find somebody that can teach you black gospel, right? I mean, it's not like two Filipino nightclub singers. So the Japanese started going to these people saying, hey, you're singers. Do you know how to sing black gospel? They said, like, do cows moo? So they said, of course we know how to sing black gospel. And they said, could you teach us? It wasn't like they had a whole lot else to do. So they started a choir Japanese Black Gospel Choir. Does that sound like an oxymoron or what? <coughs> I'm in Southern California and people said, Oh, Steve, have you heard the, the, the Japanese Black Gospel Choir? I think, could you try that one more time? I couldn't even imagine what they were, what the, what the, what's going through your mind. So, so I said, Oh, you got to meet them. So they took me to meet this Japanese Black Gospel Choir. And they were all white. Well, kind of yellow, but at any rate. So they, they told me that what this couple started doing is they started this, this choir to teach Japanese non-God followers how to sing black gospel. But they had two problems. The first problem was you can't sing black gospel unless you know the gospel. So they started breaking up. The choirs, half of the time they would teach them what the gospel was, and the other half they would teach them how to sing it. But then the people wouldn't come back. So they asked some of the Japanese who seemed more friendly than the other ones, they asked them, why aren't the people coming back? And they said, because you're offending them. And they said, oh, tell us what, what, what not to do. And we went, no, they said, no, no. What you're doing that offends them is, is that you're making them indebted to you. And they said, when they feel indebted to you, then they're, then they're shamed and they won't come back. And they said, well, how do we fix that? And they said, charge them. So they started charging them. And then the people not only started coming back, but they started bringing their friends. So they went to two choirs, three choirs, 20 choirs. But then the people said, but our families have never heard us do this. So they started having concerts. And they would, the Japanese would invite their families and charge them to come to the concert. <laughs> And the audience can't understand black gospel sung by Japanese unless they understand the gospel. So they took the Japanese members of the choir who, who were becoming God followers and they would have them at the beginning of the concert go out and share the gospel and say, this is what we're going to sing to you and then sing. You haven't heard black gospel until you've seen Japanese doing the... <laughs> in, in tight leathers... And then the Japanese said, but we want to go on tour. So they started tours. They called them the 3S tours. Singing, sightseeing, and shopping. And they brought the Japanese tours to the U.S. to sing to the choir in churches. I mean, it's, is this good or what? So what they do is they brought them to the U.S. And they, hold, they do these black gospel choirs in Christian churches in the U.S. And then the Christians take them home to their homes to show them what it looks like to be part of a Christian family. Wow. My favorite is, oh, happy day. <laughs> you can sing along if you know 
black gospel, but you got to do it Japanese style. I can't wait to have you tell people at home about this. I mean, it's it's hard to even get going. Just start by saying, can I tell you the uh, Japanese black gospel choir story? The guy leading the choir, he's the uh, he's one of the uh, Filipinos, and that's his wife over there on his right. No, his left, your right, your left, my right. Guys, these are Japanese people paying to learn the gospel. You know what their big problem was? They didn't know what to do with the money because they had raised support for two years. So they started a church. They rented a hall, and the Japanese wouldn't come. They wanted to rent the hall. They wanted to be their church. Uh, the guy in the middle, uh, he's an import from the U.S. He's a... You figured that out. Okay. Now, you've got to understand, they may seem a little stiff, but have you, have you been to Japan? I mean, this is about as loose as it gets over there. Oh, now, see the lady with the, with the leather skirt on? Don't wear leather unless you want to be uh, a standout because you get leather on and it just happens. Okay. Let's make a deal. We never say never when God's at work, all right? Whoopi Goldberg, go missionary girl. That's really all I had prepared. Okay, what's, yes? Would you please? Would you? Thank you for doing that. People ask me what the hardest part of this whole story that God has written me into in a small way, and that's the hardest part. 
my mom died a few years ago, and um, my sister and brother had made me promise them that before my mom died that I would get her to sit down and tell her life story. You know, in this story, I've heard people introduce me hundreds of times, you know, as Steve's saying, you know the story of the five missionaries. And I always kind of think, ooh, you know, because it's not a story about five missionaries. It's about, it's a story about how God used five missionary men. But, you know, their role was very short in this story. But their five wives, who many of you have never heard of, and if you ask me the widow stories, in fact, one of my favorite stories is the widow stories. It's uh, I wrote a chapter in Walking His Trail, which is standalone stories of of things that I've seen where God has intervened in my life or in the lives of people around us. Um, I'd love to tell you a couple of those stories. But um, And God also used six Waurani warriors and four Waurani women. You know, have you seen Star Wars? Take the dark side out and no story, right? God used those people, um, Minkai and Kimo and Dewey and Nimonga, and Nampa, and Gikita, and Epa, and uh, um, Mintaka, and Mangamo, and Dawa. God used them too. That They were part of the story as well. Um, but my sister and brother wanted to have a, a recording of my mom telling her life story, just, just off the cuff, not prepared. And uh, my mom... Uh, took care of my stepdad, who is a wonderful, wonderful man, and found out that she had cancer for the fourth time the day before dad died. And uh, then mom was in and out of the hospital. She came to our house, and um, she just was full of cancer, and she kept retaining fluids. So I would take her down once and then twice a week to have fluid drained. And one day we got down there, and when they drained like three liters of water out of mom's abdomen, one of her lungs collapsed, and so they had to keep her in the hospital overnight. And I realized if we don't, if I don't record mom telling her story now, it'll never happen. And so even though she was in terrible pain, can you imagine having three liters of, of fluid drained from your abdomen? And on our way home, I remember mom flinching as I ran over one of the reflectors in the middle of the road, just that little deal. And I realized, oh, Mom, I promised Kathy and Phil that I would get you to tell us your life story. Would you do it when we got home? So I called some of the uh, friends at iTech, and they came over with cameras, and Mom sat down and started to tell her story. In fact, um, we have a video called the Jim Elliott story, but they tagged this on behind. Or if you want to get a copy, if you write us at iTech or email us, um, we have this on videotape. We edited down to half an hour. But I was sitting there listening to my mom, who I had known all my life, but, but there was a whole section of her life that I hadn't known. Like somebody came to me one day and said, uh, I didn't know that your mom was a Braves fan. I said, what Braves? They said, baseball, you know. And I said, my mom doesn't even know what baseball is. And they said, oh, yeah, your mom's a Braves fan. I said, not my mom. My mom doesn't even know what baseball is about. And they said, but your mom is a Braves fan. I, we saw her watching the Braves game when we were at her. Have you ever had one of those moments when you just can't, things just don't fit together? I mean, my mom, she never uttered the word baseball. Not in my hearing, 
So I went and asked my mom. I said, Mom, what is this? I mean, the craziest thing happened. This Somebody just saw me and said that you're a Braves fan. Mom said, oh, I am. <laughs> I said, baseball? And my mom said, oh, Steve, I've always loved baseball. And I said, why didn't you ever tell me? She said, well, you know, nobody played baseball in Ecuador. So I said, well, and why the Braves? Mom said, oh, because I found myself, I was watching all the baseball games, and I said, no, Lord, I'm going to make it just one team. What should it be? And she said, I decided, God and I decided who would be the Braves. I don't know why. but So Mom is a Braves fan. You just never know, do you? So I'm listening to my mom telling her life story, and she, and just just before this, we had gone to Idaho so my mom could say goodbye to her brother and some of her family that lived up in Idaho. And her brother Elvin drove us around uh, Caldwell, yeah, Caldwell, Idaho, by Nampa. And they were pointing out all the houses that they lived in. I thought, wow, they moved more than Ginny and I have. But you know what? I noticed that all the houses were these little, tiny, very, very inexpensive houses. And then my mom, I said, Mom, why did you live in all these houses? She said, well, you know, Grandpa lost the farm, the family farm in the Depression. And he had asthma so we, or hay fever, so we moved to Idaho. And she said he was a day laborer. I, I didn't know that. And then Uncle Elvin drove by this house, and he didn't point at the house. He pointed at the garage and said, Oh, Marge, you remember when we lived there? And Mom said, Oh, I do. Weren't those happy memories? My mom graduated from a big high school as the valedictorian while her family was living in a garage that they rented from some people. And my mom said, you know what I loved about those days? She said, Grandma would let me bring anybody that I wanted home. And I thought, and you would take friends home to your house in a garage where Mom and Grandma would sleep in the house and Uncle uh, and Joanne and Uncle Elvin and Grandpa would sleep over in a, a little shed beside the garage. And my... my I mean, my image of my mother was growing. I just couldn't believe it. And then my mom said, oh, Steve, those were such important days because she said, you know, when your dad and I went down to Ecuador, we spent the first year living in Shell in a tent. Now, we get about 30 feet of rain a year in Shell Med. It's right on the edge of the Andes Mountains, right where the, the weather comes across the Amazon lifts. And the, the ground is so spongy that if you sit, if you stand in one place and just vibrate, you know, like you girls do when you're crying and you don't want anybody to know? You just sink out of sight. And my mom and dad lived like that for a year because dad was so busy flying missionaries and supplies and, and into, into the jungle and flying sick Indians out that he didn't have time to build a house. And my mom said, you know what? I love that tent. It reminded me so much of living in the garage. And then she said, and you know what else? She said, the only time we, Grandpa ever got off, except for Sunday, and Sunday was strictly kept, she said, was rain days. When it would rain, Grandpa couldn't get day work, so she said, so he would take us into town, and he would always give me a nickel. And she said, I'd go to the candy store, and I would just browse and browse. She said, I never bought anything but lemon drops, because you could get more lemon drops for a nickel than anything else. And she said, but... From that experience, I always loved rain days. And then they moved to a place where they had, I mean, 30 feet of rain. You got a few rain days there. 
So mom is telling me her story, and she, and she said, you know, and then one day I was a nurse with a friend. We were in Southern California going to UCLA uh, nurses training, and she said, but we would get off, our shift would get off just after the, the, the services at the Church of the Open Door there would would start. And she said, so one night I heard that there was going to be a real live missionary there. And she said, I had never met a real live missionary. I couldn't wait to go. So she said, so we ran all the way from the hospital. We ran and the only place that was left was way up in the third balcony. And she said, this missionary woman started talking about going someplace uh, long ways away and being a missionary. And mom said, and I was just sitting there thinking, Marge, could you do that? And she said, then at the end of the program, this woman said, I want to know if any of you would like to spend your life in serving God to hurting people to the least of these, like Florence was talking about. And she said, in my heart, I could just feel this swelling, and I knew this is what God wanted me to do. And she said, before I could even think about it, she said, I jumped up and I ran down that circular staircase all the way to the lower floor, and I ran down to the front. And she said, I fell on my knees, and I said, Lord, your will for my life at any cost. And then my mom at 81, she looks into the camera, and and the tears start to come, and she said, I had no idea what that cost would be. And then she started talking about marrying her first and only love up to that point, my dad, about seeing him die and then having three children to raise all by herself in Ecuador. And then she started talking about meeting Abe and and God bringing dad Abe, whose wife died of cancer, into our lives. And I would strongly suggest that you not become somebody's uh, stepfather when they're a sophomore in high school when they know absolutely everything. This man was so godly that I loved him. Well, I had known him because I was so jealous of his boys who had a dad to take them fishing and stuff. And then he became my dad, and then mom had to bury him. And she thought, she said, I, I buried two husbands prematurely. And then she thought dad was 83, and she thought, well, it seemed prematurely. <laughs> And then she said, now she's talking about some of the difficulties in her life, and she said, if I had it all to do over again, I would still say, Lord, your will for my life at any cost. You know, when we were burying, getting ready to bury mom, she died in our home. She died once before when we were down in the jungles. Um, I I got a radio call that, I was, you know, away from a radio, had a group of people from North America down there so that the Waurani could teach people like you what it was like to live on the other side of the fence. And a radio call came that my mom had died. And you know what the the worst part of it was? I started thinking, when did I last see mom and did I tell her that I loved her and I admired her? And I couldn't remember. And I ran through the jungles with Minkai for an hour and a half to get down to the airstrip where a plane was coming to fly me out to go be at my mom's funeral. And when I got down, I went by the radio and, and 
radioed for some information. When did mom die? What, you know, what were the circumstances? And the man listened through all this and said, uh, I don't know the circumstances. Let me get somebody. And somebody else came and said, no, your mother didn't die. It was somebody else in the group. And so I had to run an hour and a half back up the trail. But you know what? That made such an impression on me that when I got up to Quito, one of my mom's good friends said, Steve, how's your mom doing? And I said, Aunt Char, she died. And she looked at me and she said, no. And I said, no, she didn't die. And she looked at me and said, why did you say that? And I said, well, because I thought she, she said, Steve, did she die or didn't she die? And I said, no, she didn't die. <laughs> but then she really did die. So I decided that I would never would see my mom again without making sure that when I left that I said, mom, I love you and I respect you. You're one of my heroes of the faith. I left to go to a, to a meeting about five minutes before mom died. I just got to the meeting and Jenny called me and said, my mom had been comatose for a day and a half, but the last time my mom said anything to me, I had said, mom, I love you and respect you. You're a hero of the faith to me. And she, and she just could hardly whisper and she said, Steve, you too. I love you too. Be a hero of the faith. So we're getting ready to bury my mom, trying to make all those decisions that you're least qualified to make in a situation like that. And they were showing us caskets, and I thought, there is no way mom would want to be buried in a $5,000 box. So they showed me the, the economy model. It was a $3,500 box. And I said, Jenny, I'm going to build mom a box. And Jenny said, Steve, you can't do it. You don't have time. I mean, we've got to bury mom now. And so I said, I can hear mom. I can hear her talking from, <laughs> if you're Catholic from, you know, Victoria, if not. From, I said, I can hear mom. Mom is going to be really upset if we pay that much money for a box. And then I started thinking of all the Christians in North America being buried in $3,500 to $5,000 boxes and all the other stuff. Do you know how much it costs to die in North America? I started adding that up, and you know what? It is about five times as much. Christians in North America, I calculate, spend five times as much on burying our dead, who aren't really dead, than we do on all great commission efforts. And I just knew that mom wouldn't want to do that. So what we did is we bought, still pretty expensive, but a $100 cardboard box that they put inside a $5,000 box. And then after everybody left, the back end had a door and we rolled mom's cardboard box out and buried mom in a $100 cardboard box. And I wrote an article about... Uh, coffin costs. <laughs> and I was going to tell you something else. Would you like a $100 box? If we all go together, I bet we could get them for 25 <laughs> You know what? My mom was a very, very common woman. Most of you have never heard about my mom. When we were making um, Beyond the Gates of Splendor and end of the, uh, and end of the Spear, 
especially from Beyond the Gates of Splendor, which most of you haven't seen. If you've seen the movie End of the Spear, you really should get a copy or view a copy. Uh, write us at, at iTech. The same people that made End of the Spear did it. Like uh, if you've ever seen the movie um, Music of the Heart, it's a Meryl Streep movie where this, this, this real story, this woman, her husband had left her, and her only inheritance was enough money to buy 15 violins. She wanted to teach violin lessons, but she was living in New York, so she went to the public schools, and they said, nobody wants to learn to play violin here. She said, just give me a chance. And it got to the point where they had to hold the lottery to see which students got this. So they, they made the Meryl Streep movie of that story. But then people said, no, the, the real story is longer than that. So then they made a documentary to go with it. If you watch Music of the Heart, then you go back and watch the real movie. And you see that when the kids play in Carnegie Hall after their first year violin lessons, most of the kids playing in Carnegie Hall are the kids, the real kids from the real movie. So they, that's what they did with End of the Spear. End of the Spear just takes this much of the story. And then there's Beyond the Gates of Splendor with the real widows, <coughs> excuse me, and the real Waudani. And I got to do all those interviews. When I interviewed my mom, one of the questions I asked is, do you remember the last time that you saw Dad alive? And Mom says, oh, yes, I remember. You know, we'd been working on this, for this, this project together for so long. She said, I don't remember that we said anything special. But she said, I do remember when I saw his little plane taxi out of the, the driveway because we were on one side of the road and taxi across the road to the uh, airstrip to take off. She said, I, I wondered, I wonder if I'll ever see him taxi out again. And she said, I never did. But when we made the, the plane, the airplane for the movie, they tried to find a, uh, a stunt pilot in the movie industry that would fly that plane down in the jungles in Panama where we filmed End of the Spear. And nobody wanted to fly an, a, a plane that was built closer to the Wright Brothers' first flight than to when we made the movie in the jungles in Panama. So in desperation, they asked me, and I said, told them I'd pray about it. Yes. <laughs> so I got to do all the, all the stunt flying in the movie I got to do. Can you imagine how special that was for me? But when, when we had the wings rounded and had it painted up in Ohio, then I, Jenny and I flew it back down to Florida, and we decided to stop off and see Mom on our way. Mom was old, and she had cancer by this time. So we landed, and I got some friends to take Mom out to the airstrip. And so I saw Mom standing at the chain link fence, so I just taxied over and spun the tail around. And... I could see mom looking for Ginny and me, and then all of a sudden you could see this look come on her face because she was seeing dad's airplane. They're taxiing up and spinning around. And I got to take mom for another ride. She did see 5-6 Henry again. And she went down when we were filming the movie. At any rate, mom said, I never, I never saw him again. And I thought, you had a radio. So what a normal person does is you call on the radio and say, Nate, I got a bad feeling about this. Why don't why don't you just come back here and let's let's maybe we should sit this one out. I said, So mom, what did you do? And she said, So we just went on with life. And then three days later, mom heard that her lover and best friend and father of her children was gone and was never coming back. I can remember how it affected me. Can you imagine how it must have affected my mom? And I heard mom tell somebody when somebody asked her once, Marge, when you were angry with God, 
how did he help you through that? And my mom said, I was never angry with God. And they, I remember them saying, oh, Marge, nobody's around. You can tell me the truth. Just tell me. How did you feel? Mom said, I was never angry with God. And then she said, if God had asked me to write the story, I might not have written. And then she caught herself and she said, no, I don't, I don't want to write the story. I'll take the way God wrote the story. When I was talking to Mary Lou McCulley, Ed's widow, I was asking her to tell me details of this, and she was older, and she died just before my mom did. And she just kept saying, oh, we were so excited because we, we so profoundly felt God's leading and protection. And then she'd go on and tell a little bit more, and then she'd say, you know, you just have to understand that all through this, we felt God's leading and protection. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, you are setting this up. I've got to ask you this question. So after she had said that about three times, then I said, Aunt Mary Lou, when they brought you Uncle Ed's tennis shoe and his wristwatch to prove to you that he was dead, then what did you think? And she kind of looks at the camera and had to think a little bit. And then she said, you know what? I still felt God's leading and protection. Aunt, Aunt Barb Udarian is one of the shyest people I know. You would never pick her out in a crowd. When I took the movie team into the jungles to see if we could actually film it down in Waurani territory, and we came out, somebody told me that Aunt Barb, they, we called them all ants, they weren't my, they were my blood ants, not my real ants. We're related by blood. I found out that she was working at a, at a youth camp just up the road from Shelmetta, so I wanted these guys to get to meet her. So we drove up there, and when I knocked on this little little wooden old house where she was staying, she was working in the kitchen at this youth camp. And I knocked on the door, and she came out, and, and she was a little bit startled because she had already been sleeping, and she was dressed or undressed for better whatever, you, you know, you women know how you do that. I, I've never figured that out. It looks like you... At any rate. So she came and said, Quien is? And I said, Aunt, Aunt Barb, it's me. And she said, who's that? And I said, Aunt Barb, it's Steve. Steve who? And I said, Steve saying she didn't have her glasses on. So she said, oh, Steve, I'm not dressed for company. And I said, Aunt Barb, that's okay because I'm not company. She said, okay, come in. And then we talked for a minute and then I said, Aunt Barb, you know what, I've got a couple guys out in the car and... Uh, would you mind if I brought them in to meet you? And she said, oh, Steve, there were about eight or ten of them. So I got them in, and we're sitting there in her – now, she's been asleep. We're on the edge of the jungles, and uh, one, of the, one of the men who helped make the movie, he was the aerial unit director, and maybe we can show some of those. Um, uh, he said, I just got to ask you a question. He said, Barbara, you need to know that I didn't come – to be a God follower until I was in college. And he said, it just totally, totally undid my life and redid it again. He said, one of the first books I read, the first book I read was Through Gates of Splendor. And he said, from that day until this, all my adult life I've been making movies. He said, that is the one movie I have wanted to make. He said, but I've read everything I could get my hands on about this. He said, Barbara... I have to ask you this question. And so he starts painting this picture. He says, here you are. You're in your 20s. Your husband, who Montana, and you have gone out to the 
to the Amazon jungles. You're living way down in the south jungles with these people that killed their enemies, not the Waurani. These were the Schwad. They would cut, kill their enemies and then cut their heads off, peel the scalp off, and then shrink it down into what they called a tsansa that they would wear on their loincloth or they would hang it in their house to show their enemies what they did to their enemies. And he says, and you have two children, and then Nate Saint comes in and talks your husband into going and helping build the, the medical clinic on the edge of the jungles. So you're separated from Roger. And then he, ta- I mean, yeah, from Roger. And then he talks Roger into helping go contact these, these people, these extremely violent people, the Waurani. And then a few days later, you get word that it's all gone. Your whole life has been turned upside down. And it was even worse than that. Every night, my dad would fly out of the little sandbar where they had landed because if the river came up, they would lose the airplane. And so, and he always flew out with Pete Fleming because he was the lightest one of the three, except that on Sunday night, on Saturday night, he told Mary Lou and Barbara, who were staying at, at Arahuno, where they would fly out every night, he and Pete would, he said, uh, the, the sandbar is packed down enough that I can take off with one of the bigger guys. And so the, the two men, Ed and Roger, whose wives were in Arahuno, drew straws, and Roger got the, the long straw, I guess it is. So Dad had told them that Sunday night he was going to fly out with Roger. So Barbara got dressed up and got Bethy, their little girl, all dressed up in her frilly little dress. And when it got to be about mid-afternoon, they went down and just started walking up and down the airstrip. And they walked up and down waiting for the little plane to come. And finally it got dark and they realized the plane wasn't coming and they went home. Does that break your heart or what? And Tom is looking at this, this woman who was in her 20s when... Her whole life was shattered. Everything turned upside down. All of her dreams completely dumped in the trash. And Tom said, Barbara, I've got to ask you, when you asked God why, what did he tell you? And Aunt Barbara looked a little bit shocked. And she batted her eyes a little bit. And then she looked at Tom and she said, well... I guess it just never occurred to me to ask God, why? And I looked at that shy woman and I thought, our God can make a superhero of the faith out of anybody. And you know what I've discovered? I've gone back and read Fox's Book of Martyrs and Jesus Freaks and and biographies of people all down through the history of the church. And you know what I see? It wasn't just the disciples that God chose to prove that he could work with anybody. But I also discovered that God doesn't go out and recruit superheroes to serve him. You know what God does? He goes out and picks people like you and me who are willing to let him write our story and he makes us heroes of the faith. Not by what we do, but by what he can do through people who are willing to be used. When my mom told me that my dad wasn't coming home again, I couldn't believe it. I just could not believe it because all my dreams 
were built around my dad and me. He was my hero. And he was going to teach me how to fly the plane. And he was going to teach me how to fix the plane. And you know what? That never happened. So when I went to college, I bought my own plane for $2,200. And when you buy a $2,200 plane, no starter, no radio, you fly it a little bit and you fix it a lot. So when it came time for them to pick a stunt pilot for the movie, you know what? We'll fly for food. I used to go out on weekends and fly around the countryside because people were always having, always having picnics. And when you land on the road out in front, taxi into their driveway... They not only feed you, but they'd send, I would tell them about all my hungry friends back at college. And so they'd just fill this backseat of this little plane with, with food, and I'd fly back to college and sell it to my roommates. <laughs> Do you know what? That was one of the things that always stuck in my little mind. How could God not let my dad teach me how to fly like he flew and how to fix the plane like he fixed it? And then God fixed it by letting me fly in the movie. Let's end tonight with God doesn't promise that if you let him write your story that all the chapters will be easy. What he does promise is that if he writes a story, he's got a last chapter that will make sense of all the others. The guys that did the movie put this little unit together, this little piece of footage. These are flying scenes from the movie. I give it to you as proof that God cares and that he can make the story turn out right if we let him write it. The plane in this story really is the bridge. It's the bridge between the high-tech 20th century and the Stone Age. It's the bridge between peace and anger and hatred. But you know, reenacting a lot of the stuff that Dad did and to make it show on camera really, uh, really made By the way, the plane that we flew up here, Dad's plane, was November N5156 Hotel. My wife thought that they had picked that number to represent five men died in January of 56 and went to heaven. The plane that we just flew up here, this plane was built up here and used down there. The plane that we fly was built down there and used up here, and Jesse got me the next sequential number, 256 Hotel. Trying to explain to Nankiwi they needed to build a runway down there. That's Dad on the right and me on the left. trust your Heavenly Father to write your story? As Grandfather Minkai says, if you walk your own trail, when you get to the end of that trail, there's nothing there for you. 
But if you walk the trail that Itota, God's only son, marked for you with his precious and strong blood, when you get to the end, he's marked your name in the book of life. And when you get there, all you have to do is like, he says, like he and I do when we go to the sleeping houses at night and we speak our name to them and they look on their register and then they find our name and then they smile and they'll give you this plastic thing that will get you in and free food and everything forever. And then Minkai asks, if, if you could walk God's very good trail, why would you want to walk your own trail? My question is, if God will write your story, if he'll write our story, why would we want to write our own? Heavenly Father, we know that you care. We know that you love us. We know that you gave more than we can give. We know that you care about our hurts, and we do hurt. Lord, I trust you to write my story. I trust you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, would you use us? Would you use our churches? Would you continue to use our country, Lord, to take your offer of of free food and lodging forever to the least of these? I pray you will, Lord. Amen. Thank you. It's a privilege.